Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be in Mauriceville, Texas, wherever in the world that is. I have never heard of Mauriceville, Texas until I was invited. And I have driven uh, from Baton Rouge to Houston so many times over the years. And often I've wondered, I wonder what's off this interstate. Now I know. There's a lot more here than you thought. But it's good to be here. You know, I was supposed to be here a month ago, and and, uh, I had some very serious eye issues come up and I had to go to Florida and have surgery on my eye. And uh, they found that I had um, major scar tissue in this eye. Then I had a cataract develop underneath it, which I can see float. You, you can see floaters, but I couldn't see it because of the scar tissue. And then I had a stigmatism that had developed under that And then the brain got all messed up and told this eye that now it was the dominant eye, where the left is my dominant eye. And so I I just had all sorts of problems until where I couldn't read. And that's kind of a problem because if you can't read, you can't see, you can't see, you can't drive. You can't do anything. And so I had to fly down and uh, one of the world's best ophthalmologists and, and eye surgeons and Got that all done and still got some other issues. I got to go back in six weeks. And I have to, at night, before I go to bed, I have to take this tube of vitamin A cream and squirt, squeeze it into my eye. like It's like gooey salve. And so when I get through, I'm like this. And it's only by the grace of God because I know how to get to my bathroom, to my bed without seeing that I can. And so it's going to be interesting tonight. And, uh, and uh, I mean, I have to, I mean, I can, I'm like, I can just see a little bit here and a little bit there, you know, and, and it coats the eye and all of that. But, you know, God created us as remarkable beings. And, and the, the gentleman, the, the doctor that uh, I went to, the technology that they used to fix my eye is technology that was derived from NASA. This, this doctor, Dr. James Rousey, who's a born-again, spirit-filled believer, and he was one of the pioneers of LASIK surgery years ago, and he, he holds scores of medical patents of different things for the eyes. He's been the dean of ophthalmology at the University of Central Florida, um, several other schools. He's taught and trained literally thousands of ophthalmologists and eye surgeons over the years. And so uh, he was watching TV one day, and he was watching this thing on NASA of how that they've got this huge telescope that can map the moon. They can shoot the moon, and they can shoot it down and take pictures of one square yard or less, and then map it out to where they can see every little thing on it. This was years ago, and he said, if I had that technology, I could map eyes. And if I could map eyes, we would, it would open and revolutionize cataract surgery and make it easier, and I could give people their sight back. And they wouldn't have to wear glasses or whatever the case may be. And so he goes to NASA, Houston, and tells them he wants the technology. They threw him out. They said, this is top secret. And he kept calling them and writing them and bugging them and telling them, look, I can use this technology to help people. And this went on for a couple of years, him bugging them. And finally, one day, he got a call, and they said, we want you to come to the Pentagon. So he goes, and he sits down with all of these secret agent guys and and, uh, tells them what he wants. And they said, said, well, we're going to take it under advisement. A few weeks later, he got a letter, said, we'll do it. They said, now, what do you need? He said, well, I need access to those men that invented those huge telescopes and we've got to figure how to take those telescopes bigger than this church 
and bring it all the way down to micro size. And they did it. So what a, yeah, all in America. Thank God I was born in America. But we've got everything, got most everything under control. And, you know, I can't see out of one eye, I'm blind in the other. But other than that, everything's cool. And, uh, but, uh, every, but we, we sorry that we missed uh, last month because that would have been my first meeting in a year. The first meeting that I've had outside of Baton Rouge. And I'm telling you, know, everybody was waiting for 2020 to get over with, but 2021 is just slow repeat of 2020. And with these idiots in Washington, we might be here to 2031. I don't know. And, uh, but anyway, don't get me started on that. But uh, we're glad you're here. And uh, tomorrow night, try to bring somebody with you. And, and uh, we're going to be ministering. I don't know what I'll be preaching yet, but I'll, I'll know before I get to church tomorrow. I promise you that. Open your Bibles tonight to Numbers chapter 13. The Word of the Lord, Numbers chapter 13. We're going to read three verses, starting at verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan. Now, let me stop there, because let me, I, I, I want to explain this, because you really have to know the Scripture very well to understand. When it said that God told Moses to send men, really, it wasn't God telling Moses. You have to go back to some of the other books, that the the men, the leaders of Israel demanded that they be allowed to send in spies. And so when it says here that God said, send them in, he was not ordering them in. He was just saying, all right, you want to do this? If you want to do this, go ahead and do it. Be careful what you ask for. So I want to make sure you understand we're going to touch on that. But it wasn't that God was sending him and directing him because God had already told them what to do. So it says here, send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man, everyone a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. I want to minister tonight on our inheritance and how we can gain it or lose it. And I want to minister, the title of this message is kind of a strange title, but I think you'll pick it up. Grapes, great cities, giants, and grasshoppers. Grapes, great cities, giants, and grasshoppers. Would you bow your heads? Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity once again that we have to minister your word. I pray that you would open my heart and my mind and my spirit to help me to articulate all that you have given me. And we give you all the praise and glory and take this word to the heart of your people that they may get a glimpse of the great inheritance that you have paid for and that you have granted us and given to us and that we may be able to take it by faith in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. I, I, I asked my secretary a few days ago, I wrote out an introduction, and I don't normally do this, but I, I felt it was important, and I asked her to type it up because I wanted to make sure that I said it exactly correctly in the way that I wanted to say it. The children of Israel were being led by God to the promised land. They were delivered by God out of the bondage of Israel for the express purpose of leaving behind a land of bondage and slavery and to go into a land of inheritance. A land of promise. That was the whole purpose for the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. You know, for God to carry out his work and his plan, he first had to have a people. 
That's why he told Abraham, from your loins, I'm going to bring forth the people that, <coughs> that will be as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And it's amazing, Abraham was a Gentile. But through his loins would come the great group of people that we now call Israelites or Hebrews. Secondly, God had to have a land. He had to have a place. And God has to have a place for you. Every single one of you, when you got saved, God had a plan for your life already in place. Not only does he have a plan, but he has a place for you to fulfill that plan. And he had a place for Israel, a land that God had chosen for them. Second, the reason why he had to have a people, and third, the reason why he had to have a land was because through these people, he was going to give the world a book, a book that we call the Bible. Every single writer of the Bible was Jewish. I know some scholars have tried to say that Luke was not Jewish, but that's garbage. Every single writer of the sacred text, all 66 books, uh, were Hebrews. They were Jews. And last of all, he not had to have a people. He had to have a land in order to give us a book. But he also had to have a people to become the womb of the Messiah. Oh, hallelujah. Through these people, in spite of, of their stubbornness, in spite of all of their failures, it would be through these people that God would send forth his son, Jesus Christ, that would pay the penalty that we all owed and would atone us from every sin, past, present, and future. Somebody needs to shout on that. God had given the law of God on Mount Sinai to Moses for the purpose of the land. They were granted miracle after miracle for this express purpose, the occupation of the promised land. Actually, the entirety of who, what, when, where was wrapped up in God's promise to Abraham of the inheritance of a land for a people. Israel, that would become a great nation with a great capital. Jerusalem, D.C., David's capital. Hallelujah. A city where God said in 2 Chronicles 6, 6, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be over my people Israel in the promised land. Israel was to become the only nation in the world to worship the one true God. Three years ago, when President Trump stood up and said, I'm officially recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and we're moving our embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel. Oh, I can feel that right now. We're moving our embassy from Israel, uh, from J Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Let me tell you, God was pleased with that. Uh, Jerusalem is God's city. It's God's capital. It's the place where God will have his name there forever. And one day, very soon, he's going to move his throne from the gates of heaven into Israel, to Jerusalem. He's going to be sitting on that throne along with David, ruling and reigning in the millennial reign, the thousand-year perfect reign of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting, though. That when Israel occupied the land, Jerusalem was called Jabus. It was a stronghold of the Jebusites. Now, you see, when God gave the land, there were enemies in the land. Now, think about that. He gave them an inheritance of land, but there were enemies. And we're going to go through that in just a moment. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because and this is not a part of my message, but I think it's just cool. I just really think the Bible is cool. And I love this, 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 this thing that he said, I've chosen this city. But yet when the people got ahead of God. And the, the biggest problem in the church is we get ahead of God. 
God has everything under control. We just have to find out what it is and obey. Hello? But the people wanted a king. Now, here's the thing. God, in his will, you could read the book of Deuteronomy. He had always willed that Israel have a king. But in his time. But the people wouldn't wait on God's time. And they said, as they looked around at the nations that surrounded them, and they they said, we want to be like all the other nations. And that's part of the problem with the church today. We want to be like all the other. No, we don't. I don't want to be like the Baptist. And I'm not being unkind. I'm not wanting to be like the Methodist. I don't want to be Presbyterian. I am a Pentecostal. That's what I am. And I'm not wanting, and I'm a pastor as well, and I'm not trying to build a church where we just, nobody knows what we are. Let me tell you, whether you love us or you hate us, you're going to know exactly what we believe, what we preach, and we're not backing down. We're not compromising. We're not bending the Word of God. I don't care if it's the biggest tithe payer in the church and they're doing something. If it's a sin, we're going to preach against it. Hello. And we're not chasing people. As I tell our people, if you don't like what we're preaching, there's the door. It swings both ways. Go find another church that will preach what you want them to preach. We don't take polls on what the people want to hear. I'm not interested in what you want to hear. I'm just interested in what God has to say. Hello. But they jumped ahead and they put Saul as king. And the word of the Lord tells us that the reign of Saul, you could sum it up in one word, take. If you put this man on the throne, he will take your children. He will take your sheep. He will take your oxen. He will take your flocks. He will take your grain. He will take your money. He will take everything from you. Kind of sounds like somebody we got in Washington right now. Hello? I don't care what anybody says. Donald Trump won that election. I don't care what anybody says. We've just witnessed the biggest... Well, I don't want to get started on that. I don't want to get started on that. And so they put Saul. And for, here's, here is the beauty of God. Even though Saul was not God's choice... God tried to work with him. God tried to use him. And at first, he yielded. And God did use him. But the flesh was what it was. And Saul lost his way until he became demon-possessed. And Jabus was this city that was in the midst of Israel. A city of the Jebusites. The church's greatest enemy, your greatest enemy, is not the external enemy. It's the internal enemy. Until you win the battle of your own heart, you will never win the battle out there. And Saul was never able to take the city of Jabus. Never. The closest he came was he burned one of the walls, but he never could penetrate it. They rebuilt the wall. They refortified it. And the Bible tells us when David faced Goliath. Oh, I love this. I, if you go the, 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 the Valley of Eli, when you go there today, where David killed that that big valley, you will find in Israel today the largest satellite farm in the world. There are literally hundreds and hundreds 
of satellites that beam up television signals. They've got satellites there that are five times bigger than this church. The biggest is 500 feet in the air. Huge satellite that is, the circumference of it is bigger than this church. We were there. The reason why we went there, we, we had some engineering questions. That's because that is the central location for all the major satellite signals of all the television networks, whatever, what country you're talking about in the world. Matter of fact, when you watch SBN, that signal goes from Baton Rouge by fiber optic to, uh, I think it's Nashville. And then from there, it shot up 22,000 miles into space. There it hits a satellite that's floating in the heavens. It is shot back down 22,000 miles to the Valley of Eli, where David killed Goliath. And then from there, it shot back up to different birds all in these different satellites that feeds Russia, that sends our signal to Europe, that sends our signal to a large portion of South America. It all goes there. And when you go there, they've got a central command center. And you walk in and there's television monitors by the hundreds and you're hearing German, you're hearing French, you're hearing Italian, you're hearing Spanish, you're hearing Hungarian, you're hearing Romanian, you're hearing all the language. And we walked in and right in the middle was Sunlight Broadcasting Network. And I mean, we were, and these are all Jews that on this. Matter of fact, the guy, the head guy, to tell you how Jewish, his name is Shmuley. And we were having to get all this technology. Our engineers were with us meeting with Shmuley. And after it was over, he comes out and he goes, I've been watching Network. I've been watching Network. I don't understand it, but I like it. <laughs> and he said, I want to help you. What can I do for you? And dad said, I want to get on television in Israel. Oh, I can do that. We're on television in Israel. Hallelujah. But Jabez, that walled city of the Jebusites. And when David, that teenage boy, about 17 years old, and Goliath, nine feet tall, had been mocking the children of Israel, send me out, somebody to fight. And Saul would ask, is there anybody that would go fight? And Saul got so desperate that he said, if you'll go out and fight Goliath, I will give you my daughter to marry. And nobody went. She must have been the ugliest woman in all of Israel. (laughs) Because men will do stupid things when it comes to women. Hello. But David walks out and says, I will go. You know the story. You come against me with a sword, a shield, and a spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And today the world will know that there is a God in Israel. And he took that sling and he threw it, and that rock found the only spot on his head that was not covered in armor. And down he went. And the Bible says, and most people have read it, and they read over it, they don't know what they're reading. The Bible said that he ran and he came up and he picked up Goliath's sword and he cut his head off and he reached down and picked up that bloody head by the hair and he jumped on the carcass and he stood on the carcass of Goliath holding that head. That was a picture of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross. He defeated, oh, I can feel that. He defeated the giant, hallelujah. He became victorious over death, hell, and the grave, hallelujah. But then the Bible says that he did something else, and that David did something else, and most people don't pay any attention. They said he took the head of Goliath, and he took it to Jabez. And don't tell us, the Bible doesn't tell us what he did with it, but The evidence is he buried it by one of the walls. And why would he do that? He was saying, 
you're going to fall, Jabez. You got no business being here. This is God's land. This land belongs to God, and we're going to take it. Oh, hallelujah. Somebody needs to praise the Lord. The land was their inheritance. And in the possession of the land, they were thinking as a believer to live as found in Jesus Christ. Everything we need to function is found in the Word of God. It was a portrayal, a picture, a type of the spiritual inheritance available to every single believer because of Calvary. That's the promise of the new covenant. A promise to any and all who will believe and by faith take the land in spite of them. These were all the enemies that were in the land. The Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, Canaanites, the giants, the children of Anak. All of them were there. So why would God give them a land and leave all of the giants and all of these enemies there? Matter of fact, the Jebusites were the most fiercest. When, when David finally as king defeated the Jebusites, the Bible said that it took Joab, who was David's commander in chief, it took a mighty angel to come down to help him defeat the Jebusites. And so these giants and these walled cities and these enemies, they're in the land trying to hold on to us and they want to build a stronghold in us. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I'm here to tell you tonight, there is a possession and inheritance and the greatest part of that inheritance is victory over the world, the flesh and the devil so that you can stand as Paul and say, sin no longer has dominion over me. Hallelujah. So why did he leave them there? Why didn't he just wipe them out? He could. He left them there for Israel to learn to trust him. You see, faith is not faith. Until it is tested. Faith has to mature. The word of God plainly tells us that the moment of conversion. That every single believer is given a measure of faith. And that measure is the same. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't take this new convert and say I'm going to give him 25%. And take this new convert and say I'm going to give him 40%. No, we're all given the same measure of faith. But here's the problem. We got too many Christians that are still living on the same faith they got when they got saved. But God wants your faith to mature. He wants your faith to grow. Let me tell you, when dad came in 10 years ago, well, it'll be 11 next month, and said, God has told me to start a 24-hour television network. Now, I've been in television all of my life. Even though it was only an hour program, I, I know what television is. I know what it cost. I know the step. And then when he said that, I'm thinking like, oh, my goodness, we don't have enough people. We're going to have to gut the whole television department and start over because we got to go to digital. You can't get on cable unless you're digital. You can't get on the satellites unless you're digital. We're gonna, and I knew what that cost. Millions that we didn't have. And I'm sitting there thinking, how in the world are we going to do this? And one thing I've learned in my 66 years on this earth is that when my dad says, God has told me, it's settled. I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know when we're going to do it. I don't know how God's going to do it, but I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. And I mean, everybody said, you can't do it. You can't, everybody in the church, you can't do it. Everybody in television that we've known for all these 50 years, you can't do it. Well, within 60 days, we had our first contract signed. And we're on television. And now in these last 10 years, we're the fastest growing Christian network in the history of television. 
There is no network that has gained the ground in 10 years that SBN has gained. And now my dad is the longest running television preacher in the history of television. Nobody has been on television longer than him preaching the gospel. <laughs> Hallelujah. I remember sometime back we got a, a letter from some airhead preacher and said to my dad, said, you need to go off television. You've been preaching the same message. He said for 30 years, but it's a lot longer than that. Because dad started in television in 1971. He said, you've been preaching the same message. It's never changed. Now, dad doesn't, he doesn't answer most letters, but he, mother got that letter, showed it to him. He, he started laughing. He said, I'm going to write him back said, Dear Reverend Stupid. <laughs> no, he didn't say it. In response to your letter dated, da, 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 da. You're exactly right. I have never changed my message. And why would I? It works. <laughs> but he leaves them in here for us to learn dependence. To learn trust. As I've heard dad say many times, we learn nothing from our victories. We learn everything from our defeats. Matter of fact, the greatest time of learning is not when we're on the top of the mountain, but we're in the valley, or we're facing that Red Sea, or we've got a giant in front of us. Oh, we got the Red Sea in front of us and the armies of Egypt behind us. It takes that crucible where we're being squeezed, where we're being twisted, where we're being turned, where we're having sleepless nights and we don't know how that we're going to make it. He uses that and allows that to happen, that we fall on our face and say, Lord, I don't know. I can't do this. You've got to do it. And that's when he says, get out of the way and let me take over. He's promised us the land, and faith is the weapon of conquest. Faith in the finished work of Calvary. Deuteronomy 1, 19, tells us that the people knew that the Lord had told them. Listen to this. We told them, behold, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. You don't have to send out spies. I've already spied it out. I know who's there. Go up and take it. Possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has said unto you, fear not, neither be thou discouraged. Yet the people said, now this is what I was getting back in my opening remarks, we will send men before us. And they shall search out the land. The very act of searching out the land was a sign of doubt Fear, rebellion, and sin against the word of the Lord. And listen to me tonight. Don't let these words go past you. The greatest thing you can do in your life as a believer is simply say, I believe God. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. I don't know where he's going to do it. But I believe God. All things are possible to them that believe God. Hallelujah. I've told, maybe you heard this, heard me share this on TV. It's been a few years of that since I've shared, so maybe you did. When, you know, God has given Debbie and I three wonderful children, and we have nine grandchildren. From age one to 14. And I'm telling you, I love my kids. I love my, I love my kids and grandkids. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you ever lay a hand on them, I'll beat the ever-living snot out of you. And then repent afterwards. <laughs> you don't touch my kids. You don't touch my grandkids. You don't mess with them. And, and. Jennifer, our oldest, is 43, and boy, she'd kill me if I told her age. She's, you don't tell a woman's age. Gabriel is 41. Matthew, his baby brother, he's our, he, he's, Matthew is our baby, but our baby is 40 years old. Just had his 40th birthday. 
And, and, but Gabriel, when he was, you know, I knew Gabriel when he was two months old. I knew that God had called him to preach. We were in Long Beach, California in a crusade. And Debbie and the kids at that time, just Jennifer and Gabriel had come. And I was waiting backstage for them to get there to help Debbie and the kids. So they pulled up and I took Gabriel in my arms and I turned to walk to the platform and I got just a couple of feet and all of a sudden the presence of God came all over me and I couldn't move. I just stood there holding him and the spirit of the Lord began to move and, I, and the Lord spoke to my heart and said, this child does not belong to you. He belongs to me. Raise him right. And he said it again. This child does not belong to you. He belongs to me. Raise him right. And I knew from that point that he was called to preach, though I never said anything to him, because you can't call them. They've got to have that revelation themselves. And you can't push them. You can't do it. You've got to let them have their own encounter with God. And at, when he was five years old, we, we live next door to my mother and dad. And, uh, you know, the best thing about having your parents live next door, you can get rid of the kids. <laughs> and they were always go over there. And, and it was a Friday night. And, and I don't, and I don't know why normally if one went, all of them went, but for some reason, Gabriel didn't want to go. And we, have a root, we had a routine. Debbie would put Jennifer to bed. I put the boys to bed. And we all, we did this. We would, we would read a Bible story to them. And then we would pray with them. And then we would put them in bed and I'd put them to sleep listening to Bible stories on cassette. Put the word in their spirit. Gabriel was five years old. And I said, all right, Gabe, it's time to go to bed. I'm going to read you a story. He goes, I don't want a story. I said, okay, we'll get in bed. We'll pray, and I'll turn the camera. I don't want to take. I said, okay, what do you want? I want you to preach me a sermon. And I said, yeah, yeah, get in bed. No, I want you to preach me a sermon. And I, in the back of my mind, I said, He's t- he wants me to preach a sermon. So I said, wait right here. Walked down the hall and got my Bible. Walked back, closed the door, said, I want everybody in the church to set up. I want everybody in the church to open your Bibles. Five years old, he can't read. He grabs his little picture Bible, opens it up. And I opened my Bible up to John three sixteen. And I read it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then I began to preach on salvation. I preached about 10 minutes. And I said, I got through, I said, I want everybody in the church. I'm not yet. I said, I want everybody in the service to bow your heads. Gable. I said, I want everybody to look deep into your heart. Is there anyone here in the service tonight? Is there any, I actually said this, is there anyone in the sanctuary tonight that would like to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior? I said, I want everyone that raised your hand to stand up. And he jumped off that bed and I said, I want you to lift both hands and I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer. And I want you to pray it with me. And I led him in the sinner's prayer. And the moment he said amen, five years old, he looked up and he went, I'm born again. 
And I said, yes, you are. I said, and now, Gabriel, you need to tell somebody what the Lord has done in your life. Now, I didn't mean right then. (laughs) And he went, okay. And he took off running. He ran down the hallway to our bedroom. And I'm like, what is he doing? And he picked up the phone and he called mother and daddy's house. It's like nine and nine. You got to understand, my daddy goes to bed at six o'clock at night. Because he gets up at like 3.30 in the morning. He's in the office at 5.30 in the morning. He's 85 years old. He's the first one in the administration building. And he woke my dad up. I said, hello. Papa! What? I'm saved. See you tomorrow. And when he was eight, he got filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, and and I've I've known this, but when he was at five, he not only got saved, but I noticed at the age of five that Gabriel was a natural-born athlete. I mean, he was, he just had coordination, hand-eye coordination that was not normal for a five-year-old. And he fell in love with basketball. And by the time he was seven years old, he was shooting on a regulation goal, not a little bitty one, and he was making them. You know you're in trouble when your seven-year-old son can beat you in horse every game. And I enrolled him in basketball camps. He just was, he just, he was a little thing, and he was having to play. They would have to move him up to kids that were 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, and goes up through school and gets to high school. And the summer between his junior and senior year, he traveled all over the United States, different camps, won awards, amazing awards. And the final camp before school was starting, he was at the LSU camp. Five, it's about 550 high school ball players. He was, in the high school ranks, he was the third shortest, five foot nine, point guard, who could dunk. And the rules of the camp at LSU were very strict. Parents, you drop them off, you don't sit foot on camp till the, till the campers are through. Second day of camp, my secretary comes in and said, Coach Dale Brown is on the phone for you. That's head basketball coach at LSU. I said, hello? And I knew Coach Brown. I knew him. I said, hello, is there a problem? He said, Donnie, come down here. Come down where? To the PMAC, Maravich Assembly Center. Come on down. I said, Coach, parents are not allowed. Come on down. I said, is there something wrong? He said, no. I want you to see how good your son is. I said, what do you mean? He said, Donnie, your son is the greatest pure shooter I've ever seen outside of Steve Alford that played for the University of Indiana. His form is perfect. He said, I've got, my, I've got the players, my players that are on campus. I've, I've called them all and made them come to the gym to watch him shoot. He's killing everybody. He said, you come, you park here, and I'll have somebody waiting for you. And I'm sitting there, I drove down, and I'm like, whoa, this is cool. (laughs) And parked where he told me to park, and he had somebody waiting for him. He walked in, and there was just games going on everywhere. Coach Brown walked up and said, watch over there. I don't don't walk any further. I don't want him to know you're here, but watch him. And I mean, he's in the land of giants. Five nine, and he's just he he. I mean, when he was in junior high, he was shooting from beyond the three point NBA range consistently. Perfect, and he's just bombing them in. And Coach Brown said, "Donnie said I don't have any scholarships left, but I want Gabriel to walk on to LSU next year. I'll give him preferred walk on status." I said, "Well, Coach, that's that's nice, but that's really not the plans." And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you wouldn't understand. But still, I was never going to force 
anything. And so, at the end of camp, Gabriel was voted the most valuable player. And the award was an autographed basketball by Shaquille O'Neal. Presented by Shaquille O'Neal. Now, can you get this? Seven foot four and five foot nine. There was a great eclipse when he stood over Gabriel. And I remember he goes, hey, little man, I've been watching you. You're good. Here. And his hands were bigger than Gabriel's whole body. I mean, it was unreal. And, and so, I mean, you know, you can imagine what a teenager thinks. And the first game of the season, talking about faith, having to believe God. The first game of the season, Gabriel had stolen the ball from a guy, and he was running down the court for a layup, and there was a wet spot on the court. And his foot hit that wet spot. When it did, his leg flew out from under him, but then his heel caught the dry part. And there was a player chasing him. And that player fell on top of the knee. And when he did, Gabriel's knee exploded. He screamed. And I'm sitting in the stands, and he is withering on the court, grabbing his knee, and he's going, my knee, my knee. And I watched that knee from the stands just do this. And I jumped out, jumped out of the stands, and I ran onto the court. It was our gym, and I ran onto the court. And, and there's a hospital a mile away. And he's crying. He's in so much pain. He's, and I'm watching a knee turn purple and red and just black and I'm, it's mangled and I, I scoop him up in my hands just like this and I pick him up and I'm carrying him to the car to take him and all of a sudden the Lord said do not take him to the hospital take him home and I said, God, no, I, my son, he's, that, that knee was the size of a grapefruit. No, no, I got to take him. He's in pain. He's crying. He's in so much pain. And the Lord said, do not take him to the hospital. Take him home. And I laid him in the back seat, and I, I'm sitting there, what do I say? I said, Gabriel. I don't know if you'll understand this. But God said not to take you to the hospital. But to take you home. I don't understand it. But do you trust me? And through tears he said, Dad, I trust you. Man, I felt like a dog. Brought him home. Had to pick him up and carry him. And he's crying, and he's going, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting. Got him in bed and had that leg propped up. And how do you tell his mother? I'm trying to tell Debbie, I, don't, I can't explain it, but God said to bring him home. That was a Tuesday night, and I didn't sleep a wink that night. I'd get up and walk down the hallway, and I could hear him moaning. And I'm like, God, I'm a terrible father. I'm a terrible father. I'm a terrible person. Got up the next morning, went to work, and just came home to get ready for church that night. And he is just in agony, in agony. And I kept saying, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. You've got to give me a reason and nothing. Just do not take him to the hospital. And went to church that night, and I don't, rem I don't have the slightest idea what dad taught. I was just, my mind, I was zoned out. My mind wasn't there. My spirit wasn't there. I was there in body, but that's all. And the service ended, and I'm 
walking across the parking lot to my car, and all of a sudden, the presence of the Lord came all over me just like I felt it those years before in Long Beach, California. And all of a sudden, I began to weep. And then I began to pray in the Spirit. And it was like my feet were cemented to that pavement. I stood there for nearly 10 minutes speaking in tongues. I was just lost in another world. And finally, I regained my composure and I got down, I got behind my car and the wheel of my car. And I sat there, I said, now, God, what are you doing? He said, when you get home, you lay hands on Gabriel and I am going to heal him. And I drove home and I ran upstairs to his bedroom, laying there with that pillow underneath, propped up, just laying there with a big bottle of Excedrin. He was gulping Excedrin down, trying to find something to help ameliorate the pain, but you couldn't. I mean, it was horrible. And I walked in. I said, Gabriel, the Lord just spoke to me and said he was going to heal you. And I opened my Bible and I began to read to him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to them that believe. And I said, Gabriel, do you believe? I said, you can't live off of my faith. You can't live off the faith of your mother. You can't live off the faith of your grandparents. You've got to believe God for yourself. And I remember him looking at me and said, Dad, I believe. I believe God. And I began to read other scriptures, how they brought the halt, the sick, the lame, and he never turned anybody away. But the Bible said he healed them all. He healed them all. He healed them all. And I put my hands on that knee, and all I got in English was, Father, in the name of Jesus, and the Spirit of God hit that room. And I began to speak in tongues. Gabriel was speaking in tongues. And then we went, I don't know how long this went on, but when I opened my eyes, Debbie was standing in the doorway. She said, when I walked in the door downstairs, I could feel it. And I got, and I got through praying and I stood up and I said, you're healed. And I turned around and walked out, walked down the hallway. Now I'm a human being. I'm not a super man. And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. When I got to my bedroom and I was taking my cut off, I said, God, that better have been you. Because <laughs> the worst thing you can do is give somebody false hope. And I'm taking my coat off. And all of a sudden I heard Gabriel scream, Dad! Dad! And I ran looked down the hallway and he was standing in the hallway going, look, Dad, look, I saw it go down. I saw it go, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. I'm looking, I remember, and it was perfect. I mean, it was perfect. There was no swelling. There was no bruising. There was no internal bleeding anymore. It was as perfect. And I said, and I just like, I told you. I told you. And I mean, and that, see, he went on that season. He was the MVP in the district, all state in the state of Louisiana. Could have played at LSU, but God, but God had other plans. But I'm on the point I'm trying to make is, it was faith. There was a possession, an inheritance in that new covenant for healing. Everything we need is found in the new covenant, but you can't have it unless you take it by faith. Hallelujah. Oh, the greatest thing you can do is believe God. In effect, by the leaders of Israel demanding to search out the land, they were saying, we can't take the land. Now, that's my introduction. As we read this story, there's three reports that were given. And out of the three, there's only two that counts. The first was God's report. God's report said, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Pezzarite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Deuteronomy 22, 9 says, and he has brought us up into this place and hath given us the land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. Numbers 13, 23 says that one cluster of grapes, now we get into my sermon titles, that one cluster of grapes were so big that it had to be carried between two men. Oh, hallelujah. God has more for you than you could ever think possible. God's plans for you are bigger than you could ever imagine. He doesn't want to give you just some grapes, but grapes so big that it has to be carried by two men. Somebody needs to praise the Lord. And he said that he gave them pomegranates and figs as well. And I don't like pomegranates or figs. My, my philosophy on eating is if it's green, it ain't good. Because everybody knows that a healthy diet is Krispy Kreme donuts and bluebell ice cream. That's as healthy as you can get. That's why I run every day, so I can eat Krispy Kreme donuts and bluebell ice cream. God's report was a report of protection and plenty. Oh, hallelujah. God is our protection. God is our protection. And in him is everything that we need. Not just some, but plenty. That word plenty means more than enough. Hallelujah. That means that whatever you need on Monday, there's going to be much more left over for Tuesday. And there's going to be plenty for Wednesday. And there's going to be plenty for Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday. It starts back over again. There is plenty. He had, there's plenty of mercy. There's plenty of of grace. There's plenty of healing. There's plenty of deliverance. There's plenty of joy. There's plenty of, plenty of prosperity. There's plenty of peace. Whatever you need, there's plenty in God's report. Hallelujah. But the leaders said, we can't do it. And Moses sinned in allowing these men to vote. Now, let me help you. The work of God is not a democracy. The work of God is not a democracy. We don't vote. God's government is the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. God has not raised up businessmen to run the affairs of the church. Hello? That's why church government, most of it, is wrong. God doesn't call men that are women that have never preached a sermon to have a voice in how the, oh, don't get me started, how the work of God is carried out. But God speaks to his servants whom he has called. Well, how do I know if he's right? The fruit will be there. Hello. Either it happens or it doesn't happen. Hello. Then there was the majority, I got to hurry, the majority report. The 10 of the 12 spies, they came back and they said, we saw the strong walled cities, the great cities. We saw giants, that was the sons of Anak. We saw the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. I want to ask you tonight, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? Yeah, we got COVID. Yeah. We got crazies in Washington. Yeah. We got crazies in state houses all across the United States. Yeah. We've got, we're seeing our rights slowly being trying to take away from us. Hello? We're seeing it all around. We're seeing socialism creeping up and trying to gain a stronghold. What do you see? Yeah, that's there. That's going on. Yeah, they are Hittites, and there's Hivites, and there's Jebusites. And everybody knows Jezebel is still alive, and her name is Nancy Pelosi. Hello? 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 Can I get a witness on that tonight? Yeah, but we got problems. Yes, we do. 
But what I see is this. I see the word of the Lord that says, in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. I see the hand of God moving. I see, in fact, it doesn't matter what's happening in Washington. God is bigger. It doesn't matter what a governor says. God is bigger. It doesn't matter what they're trying to do to the church. God is bigger. I'm not looking at the giants. I'm looking at the giant killer. Hallelujah. I'm not looking at the Hittites and the Pezzarites and the Jebusites, but I'm looking at the men and women of God that can say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Hallelujah. He said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Let me tell you something tonight. The weakest child of God is stronger than the greatest demon that Satan has. Because you've got the name of Jesus on your side. You've got the blood of Jesus. You've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the word of the Lord says, in my name, you shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. In my name, you'll cast out demons. In my name, you'll tread upon serpents. Hallelujah. Let me tell you, the weakest believer has more power in them than all the powers of darkness combined because you've got all of heaven behind you. We're not able because the people are stronger than we are. No, they're not. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We are in our own sight as grasshoppers. They saw them big and themselves little. Now, in the natural, that may be the way it is. But this is not a natural warfare. This is a spiritual war. A spiritual warfare that's being carried on. Oh, It was the language of unbelief, doubt, rebellion, and sin. This is walking by sight and not by faith. Everything we have came in spite of the majority of the church telling that we would fail. Do you know that the work of God for 2,000 years has been carried forth on the backs of the few and not the many? The work of God is always advanced, not by the multitude, but by the few that would say, I believe God. I believe God. God is bigger than the problem. He's bigger than the rebellion. He's bigger than doubt. He's bigger than unbelief. Then there was the minority report. The Bible said that Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it. For we are well able to overcome it. That's the language of faith. They were saying, listen, we're not the ones that have to kill the giants. God has said he's going to take care of it. He's got to do it. Let's go up. There's grapes for us to possess. There's a land flowing with milk and honey for us to possess. There's a land that God has already partitioned and divided for every single tribe of Israel. Hallelujah. That every man, every woman, every boy, every girl would get their fair share of the land land of promise and the land of inheritance and nothing has changed. God has a land for you, a place for you, and it's full of milk and honey and grapes bigger than the eye can imagine. True faith does not deny the existence of obstacles, but true faith proclaims the power of God. Faith and truth are never popular to the majority. But people of faith will never let the majority stop them. Now, what do you mean by that? I mean by this. When you put it up for people to decide, the majority will always see the problem. I mean, sometimes I'll walk in dad's office. I said, don't you ever lose any sleep. 
over the bills? He goes, no. (laughs) And why should I? I'm not a banker. I'm not the supplier. I'm just the preacher. God's the supplier. And he's taken care of us all of these many years. He's not stopping now. He hasn't led you this far to leave you behind. He's got too much invested in every single one of you. Refuse to hear doubt and unbelief. But hold on to God's promises and walk by faith and watch the Lord give you the giant wall cities. And watch the giants fall before your eyes. Go forth and eat the grapes. And drink the milk and savor the honey and prosper in the land that God has given you. But, brothers, brother, I'm just, I'm a pastor. I got just a little church. I, 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 no, 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 no. Prosper where God has placed you. Little is much if God is in it. I would, I would rather pastor 10 and see them mature and develop in the Lord than have 10,000 still wearing diapers, spiritual diapers, after 30 years. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not in the numbers. It's what we do with the numbers. Stand to your feet tonight.